Mindfulness Mode 322. When you are mindful of your purpose in any particular conversation, you leave a legacy. Hey, welcome listeners. You're listening to Mindfulness Mode with your host and Mindfulness Life Coach, Bruce Langford. Great to have you here. If you're a repeat visitor, if you're part of Mindful Tribe, thank you so much for being here. And yeah, I just wanted to uh, mention I've been receiving quite a few emails and comments. That's always fantastic. And you probably know that I send out random t-shirts and, and mugs to people. I just sent one out yesterday to to a woman, Brooke. So hi, Brooke, if you're listening, you're going to receive your t-shirt soon. Brooke is in Texas and she sent me this terrific email about how much the podcast means to her and what she's learning and so on. But uh, you know what? If you want to email me, send it to bruce at mindfulnessmode.com and you can check out all the show notes at the, the uh, website mindfulnessmode.com so do that and get ready for today's episode because as you could hear from the clip we're talking a little bit about legacy and a lot of other things too related to mindfulness with my friend Tom Singer so sit back relax and enjoy hey Tom are you in mindfulness mode today I am always mindful that is fantastic. That is great. Well, Tom, you are a pretty incredible guy. I want to share with my audience a little bit about you. Tom Singer is a professional master of ceremonies and keynote speaker for corporate, law firms, and convention audiences. He's also authored, you know, get this, not six, not eight, but 12 books on the power of business relationships, sales, networking, presentation skills, and entrepreneurship. Tom is also the host of the Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do podcast, where he interviews business leaders who possess an extra dose of the entrepreneurial spirit. Stories from Tom's interviews are shared with his clients, and he challenges people to be more engaged and enthusiastic in all of their, their actions. So, Tom, let's start here. What does mindfulness mean to you in your life? What's it all about for you? You know, I've struggled with mindfulness for a long time. And so uh, one of the things that I have recently done is about two years ago, I had made a pledge to myself that I was going to make age 50 to 75, the best years of my life. And it's not that I had bad times before. It's not that I, you know, had an awful time. I actually have had a pretty good run uh, the, the, the first 50 years. But, you know, the, the age 25 through 50, I, you know, married and raising kids and, and responsibility and mortgage, you know, mm -hmm. I kind of got away from myself. And when I really looked back at, at the, you know, my teens and my early 20s, I, I had a lot of fun and not that I didn't have fun that next set, just I let responsibility take me over and I wasn't being intentional. And so I've made this pledge that from 50 to 75, I'm going to have the best years of my life. And every now and then somebody pipes in and goes, well, what about 75 to 100? My theory <laughs> is I'll, I'll cross that when I get to it. Uh, I just want to take it one quarter at a time here. And so I think the the thing that mindfulness really means is being intentional and not getting caught up in the stress and the BS and, uh, you know, saying yes to more things that I might have worried about what people would have thought of me before. 
Yeah, well, you know, you always have lots of stories. I noticed that. And you're very energetic. One of the things that I notice when I read about you, learn about you, hang out with you, is that you're adamant about the difference between potential and results. You want to help people with that because there are lots of people that have great ideas about what they should do, but they just never do it. And that's a problem with so many great books, which you've read, you've written 12 of them. People read the books and they feel good when they're reading the books, but then they don't always get out there and do those things. I could be guilty of that too. Let's talk about that potential and results and how mindfulness can help us have results. Sure. Well, there's a huge paradox around this word potential. And we all think that potential really matters. And, and I, I, I mentor a bunch of sort of uh, young up and coming professionals, if you will. And they all think it's great that they've graduated from college. And some of them have advanced degrees and some of them go to fancy, fancy colleges. And they think that, oh, because I have these things, the sky's the limit. But the reality is, is potential does not equal results. You have to really put some mindful, for lack of a better word, actions behind what it is you're trying to do. You really have to be intentional and you got to be willing to take some risks. I mean, the truth of the matter is, is that you never, if you play it safe, which I did for two and a half decades, Mm. if you play it safe, all you're going to get is mediocre results. I mean, sometimes you have to actually, if you really want to reach your potential, you have to be willing to go out and, uh, uh, try some things that maybe are counter to what you believe is the, the safest thing to do. I think that's right. What's the biggest risk you ever took in your life? Well, you know, I, like I said, I don't think I took a lot of risks. I sort of leaned my ladder against the corporate wall. I was a sales guy and then a marketing executive. And I sort of did those things and I was successful and I made money. And I, you know, I mean, if you really sliced the pie, I was doing very well by our society standards. But I wasn't really happy. I didn't really take the risk. And then uh, April 1st, 2009, uh, in the heart of the recession, I lost my job. Mm-hmm. And I'd always wanted to work for myself. I didn't really know what that was going to look like. But I'd always wanted to be my own boss. I kind of thought the people I worked for were making either stupid or selfish or short-sighted you know, decisions. And so I went to work for myself. So that was a big, that was a big risk. But lately I've started in this whole plan of 50 to 75 – Uh, I've started saying yes to things that I wouldn't have done because they were either risky or I was worried about what people thought. And like one of them was is a friend of mine was going to be in a short movie and and he was 28 and the whole cast was like 25 to 28. And they had one role that was like the the head of the interns and he needed to be like a 50 year old business executive. And he said, you want to be in this movie? And it was only like 90 seconds of like a 10 minute movie. But I was like, sure, I'll do that. And you know, normally I would have been like, no, what does that do to my brand? What if it's stupid? What if the movie is lame? People would think, why were you in that? I, I, I just did it. And another thing I did was uh, in Las Vegas, they have the Stratosphere Hotel and it's got the big tower and they have a thing called the Sky Jump. And I jumped off the 108 story Sky Jump. Whereas, you know, in the past I would have been like, oh, I don't need to do that. How fun could that be? And then most recently, I took a spin at doing open mic night for stand-up comedy, which is something I wanted to do when I was in my 20s. But again, I never did it because, I don't know, I thought maybe I would suck, nobody would laugh, or, or, or even worse, what would people think if they heard I was doing it? And I just decided, what the heck? And I've done it six times so far, and I'm probably going to do it some more. 
Well, so you're really stepping out these days. And I noticed on your website, you mentioned another way you're stepping out. And that is, and you worded it this way, you said, after being a couch potato for most of my life, then you've become an avid runner and you've completed your first half marathon. So tell us about that. What made you decide to jump into the world of running? So I was 49 and a half. And, uh, I was 30 pounds heavier than I am now, maybe even 35 pounds heavier than I am now. And, uh, my daughter asked me if I would train for her for a half with her for a half marathon. Now she's in college a thousand miles away. And I was like, well, how's that going to work? And she's like, well, we can get on the same app and we can run and we can talk about it and we can do Skype. And I wanted to be supportive, but I had never run a mile in my life. In fact, the coach had a nickname for me in junior high, which was lard ass. Oh. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. If your coach for your PE class in your middle school today called a kid lard ass when he would run the 440 and be slower than everybody else, that coach would get fired. Yes. You know, back in the 70s, I think it was considered motivational. Um, but that sort of put a mindset in my head that I wasn't an athlete, that I was fat, that I was slow, uh, that I wasn't motivated, that I couldn't push myself like the other kids. I mean, the coach always had a thing where he was on my case. Turns out I'm just a slow runner. I mean, I've, I've you know worked with a running coach now in the course of what I've done, and I just my body is wired. Some people run slower. Some people run faster. I'm on the slower end. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I, I, I decided I would try to train with my daughter. And so I didn't tell her, but I, I worked up to running two miles and I worked with a friend who was a runner. He coached me when she got home for the summer after her freshman year, two years ago, I said, honey, I can do this. And she looked at me and said, oh, I don't want to do that anymore. Oh, she did? Oh, and man. <laughs> my wife literally said, oh, my God, he's going to kill her. I'd spent three months. I'd triggered my asthma. I was always in pain. And uh, in the end, I decided I would keep going, and I would get in this interval training program that she had told me about. And I started at two miles, and over the course of, like, five months, I worked myself up to the 13-point, what, two miles. And um, so, yeah, I completed a half marathon a year and a half ago. Now, the one thing I learned is that after you run a half marathon, all of your friends who are runners, they all say, now that you've run a half, you're going to want to run a whole. They're lying. I have no <laughs> desire to run a whole marathon, nor do I even think I'll, I'll run another half. But I, I give myself that out that I might. Uh, but I to keep the weight off and because of how much better I felt because I had a more active lifestyle, I still run three days a week, somewhere between two and five miles. Oh, good for you. Two to five miles, three days a week. Wow. And so how about your daughter? Did she ever go to running or what? Nope. She never did. She but, works out. She goes to the gym in the morning at her school and, and she's actually in incredible shape now. She goes like five days a week, but long distance running still hasn't been something she's done. Right. Well, I always ask a question about bullying and I'm curious to know if you have a story either in your professional life help, helping entrepreneurs, speaking, or maybe it's a story some other time in your life where bullying played a role, but maybe a situation where mindfulness, if you had known about it, would have given it a whole different perspective. You know, I'm just going to be real honest. I have one situation that comes to mind when you ask that question that involved bullying, and I'm just going to put it out there. I was kind of the bully, um, and it, I was probably 12 years old, and a bunch of people were sort of mocking you know, a kid who kind of didn't fit in, and, and I was part of it. And what's interesting is it's not part of my personality. It's not part of who I am. It's not part of who I was at the time. And if I had been mindful of not having to be sort of part of that you know, uh, group 
or whatever, I wouldn't have been part of it. Now, you know, I, I don't know if this, I don't I don't keep in touch with this person. I, I you know, I, I don't know if it was scarring or if it was just a minor thing. But I've always felt really bad about that. And because of that, I've always been really conscious of sort of not falling into that mob mentality and not being uh, uh, surprised by like a bystander mentality. Again, I wasn't leading the whole thing. I wasn't the I wasn't really the bully, but I was part of the group. And I mean, at the time, I knew it was wrong. And I don't know why it came to mind when you asked about it, but now I feel kind of like crap for even having been a part of it, just thinking about it again. But I do know that it stayed with me to the point that I never did anything like that, you know, necessarily again, at least not not to that level that I'm aware of. So if you walked out in front of an audience tomorrow morning to speak and to be the MC, and you saw this man sitting in the front row and you immediately knew it was him, what would you do? Well, I probably wouldn't do anything in the role of being on stage because that's not appropriate for him or for the rest of the audience. And I think that's one thing I think that we have to remember when you're a professional speaker is the audience is not there for your therapy. And a lot of people uh, aren't mindful of that. And they go out and they they sort of work through their problems in their speeches. Uh, however, afterwards, I would go to him and I'd pull him aside and I would say, do you remember this situation? And you know, he might say no. But if he was like, yes, I would, I would, of course I would apologize. I'd, I'd probably buy him a burger or, or something to, you know, <laughs> what, what can I do to make up for it? Can I buy you a glass of wine? Uh, but you know, and, and if he didn't forgive me, you know, I, I, that would be his, his choice, but I would definitely want to draw attention to it and say, you know, yeah, I was a dick. I know back in the eighties, your mother passed away and you shared a story about the last words she said to you and they had such an impact on you. Can you share that with our audience? <laughs> I just told this story the other day. Uh, yeah. So my mom got really sick when I was a teenager, she got cancer and, uh, at first they thought she would beat it. But over the course of like my sophomore, junior and senior year of high school, it progressively got worse somewhere around senior year, we knew that, you know, she only had a few years. And right after I left for college, you know, weeks later, she took a turn for the worst. And I started driving home two, two and a half hours every Friday to help my dad for the weekends. And I did that for about 10 weeks. And the last time I remember being with her, my dad had gone out golfing. That was part of the reason I came home so that he could have a break. And I was sitting with her and she was kind of in and out of consciousness. And she said something and I couldn't hear her. She motioned for me to come closer. And she said to me, she said, would you trade me? And I was like, what? I mean, it didn't even make sense. It was sort of out of context. She hadn't talked much. And I was like, what do you mean? And she said, would you trade me? Very mindfully, mind you. She said, would you trade me for a mother who would live longer? And I kind of got mad. I was like, why would you even ask a question like that? And she said, look, and I was upset. And she said, look, if you wouldn't trade me, then you're going to have to deal with what's going to happen. And the thing that really has stuck with me is that it must have really, especially now that I'm in my fifties, it must have sucked to be 58 years old yeah. and know that, that you were at the end of your journey. The death was, was right there. And yet in that moment, she knew her purpose. Her purpose was she was the mother of a teenager who was about to lose a parent. And the fact that that parent was her wasn't the issue. It was the fact that this kid, me, was about to go through this at far too young of an age. And we ended up talking about the fact that if, if I wouldn't trade her, 
then these were the cards that we were dealt and I was going to have to learn to deal with it. And she was very concerned that at 18 years old, this could derail a kid that you drop out of school, you can end up with drugs, you can make bad choices. And she really didn't want that to happen. And we talked for, you know, what probably was only seven to 10 minutes about this before she fell back to sleep. But I always remember, and I didn't dawn on me at the time, it was years later before it dawned on me. But when you are mindful of your purpose in any particular conversation, you leave a legacy because I'm telling you that this story now, 30 plus years later, whereas if, if she had just said to me, you know, come here, you know, I, it's been great. I, 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 you know, I love you. I mean, that wouldn't have changed how I felt one bit, mm-hmm. but because she was mindful and knew her purpose in that conversation with her own teenage son in that exact moment, she left a lasting impact. And, and I, I say it's, it's the legacy is that, you know, she knew what she needed to say in that moment. And that's something I try really hard when I have conversations, and I don't succeed often or always, but I try really hard when I have conversations to remember what's the purpose of why I'm having this conversation? What's the purpose of me being on your podcast, Bruce? If, If I can know that maybe something that I say can impact somebody, and if I can be purposeful and mindful, in, in the words I choose and just one person who listens says, wow, that's, that's heavy. That, that matters to me. Then I make a difference. And so I, that's always stuck with me. Yeah, that, that is a powerful story for sure. I know earlier you mentioned that being mindful had been challenging to you at different times. I want to know about meditation. Has that ever been part of your life? Do you meditate? What's that like for you? So I have tried over the years to to meditate. I read a bunch of books about it 15 years ago. Um, I've tried different methods of it. I don't do a really good job of sort of turning off. Uh, typically when I sit to meditate, I come up with ideas very quickly of things I should be doing. So I stop the meditation, I run over and I write them down. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, sometimes if I meditate too late in the day, I fall asleep like quickly into the meditation. Uh, I do when I'm on airplanes and because of what I do for a living on, I'm on airplanes a lot. I was gone 120 days in 2017 away from home on like 42 different trips or 38 different trips or something like that. And one of the things I, I used to do was I used to read a lot on airplanes, but my method of, of gathering information has switched. I listen to a lot more podcasts now than I do read books, which mm-hmm. I, that's good or bad, but that's just sort of where I've made my switch. The other thing is, is I'm 50, almost 52 years old. Uh, my eyesight, my eyes get tired faster and I have to wear readers if I'm going to read and I forget them sometimes. And so uh, I don't read as much on airplanes. So I do have a set of Bose canceling headphones and I have a couple of different uh, meditations saved and a couple uh, kind of guided meditations and a couple of apps that help you kind of do that. And so I do when I'm on the plane, uh, try to sort of do that and sort of be mindful about all the things that are going on. But I often find myself going, okay, I've done that now. I'll put on some music or I'll put on a podcast or something like that. So my, my dedication to meditation is not where it should be, but I do find that when I do it, even with my sort of boom squirrel time to go, I actually do think of ideas. I mean, I don't give it an hour. I give it five minutes and an idea comes. So even in short bursts, it's a good thing. Have you ever been about to appear in front of an audience and it just felt like everything was going wrong? Things just weren't clicking and there were all kinds of challenges. How did you deal with those challenges if that ever happened to you, Tom? Well, sure. And in fact, you know, anytime you talk to someone who, who, speaks a lot or does podcasts or does whatever, anyone who tells you they've never had an off day, they're either <laughs> lying or it's coming. 
because yes. it's just the nature of, of what we do. I mean, you, you can't be on in every situation. I've given 700 professional speeches over the last decade plus. You cannot always be on. And sometimes they'll put you on at a conference, like maybe it's an association, and it's right after the in memoriam you know, video where everyone yeah. in the association who died last year is up there. And it's like, I like to come out and hit the stage like this really high energy. And it's like, well, you can't do that. No. After see all the pictures of their dead friends. Uh, so I've had things like that happen or just the, the sort of unspoken vibe. It's just not right. And all you can do is just push through. I mean, you, you, you know, that's where my experience comes in is I try to read an audience. And if, if they're not digging me, I'll do more exercises. I'll do more interactive stuff. Um, the fact that I have, have participated in over 700 presentations allows me to be able to kind of tell what's going on. So if, if, if it's not an A+, plus, I can make adjustments along the way. And, and sometimes you just have to settle with the fact that, you know, be high energy, be entertaining, and realize that, you know, you, you weren't the perfect match for that group. At the same time, you you can't you have to be mindful of the fact that you have a, you have a purpose as the keynote speaker or as the master of ceremonies, and you have to deliver what you were brought in to do. And so, even if it's not gelling, you still have to do the work. Yeah, totally. That makes sense. Well, you know, I wanted to ask you about being an author. There are so many people I talk with who, you know, I have a book in me. I want to write a book. I, I've got some things written, but I just haven't done it. You've written 12 books. What are your words of advice? How do you actually get out there and make it happen? So this is where mindfulness comes in. Yeah. I think there's any activity where mindfulness is more important than is in if you want to write a book. And so I've written with a few co-authors. So, you know, that's like the easy, easy way is I give them the book that I've already written and then we customize it. So I wrote a book. My first book was called Some Assembly Required, How to Make, Grow, and Keep Your Business Relationship. And that's my book that did really well, sold well over 20,000 copies. Uh, it sort of launched my speaking career. And I gave it to a woman who was a new speaker and she rewrote it as Some Assembly Required, a Networking Guide for Women. And then that one did really well. So we gave it to a realtor and then to a person who was an expert in college graduates finding jobs. And we created, you know, networking guides for different verticals. Um, so if you work with somebody else, you don't have to be as mindful. But on the ones that I've written by myself and back in the years where I was a pretty prolific blogger, sitting down to write, you have to be mindful of it. So what I did with the first book is I just broke it down into chunks. I came up with the 10 chapters. I then created an outline with four subsets of every chapter. And then I would wake up early in the morning and I would have to write four to six pages. And I would mm. pick a subject that sort of was, you know, interesting to me that morning out of all of the subsections of all of the chapters of the book. And then I would sit down and I would just punch it out and I would do it with no distractions. I would have the door closed. They knew not to come in. Uh, so if you, if you feel you have a book in you, you can get it out, but that is a point where you have to just be very meticulous. Realize you can't write it all in one sitting. Figure out how many sittings it's going to take you. Break that down. I, I couldn't write more than about four or five pages at a time. So mm -hmm. I broke the book down into segments that would work out to be four to five pages. And then I just sat down and punched it out. And, and I think that the exercise of having written those, those books is that, and for having blogged for so long where I would do the same thing where I'd just say, now I'm sitting down and I'm doing it. Your first attempt doesn't have to be perfect. That's why there are drafts and that's why there are editors and that's why there are friends who read it and say, I think you're nuts, you know, change this. But if you don't get the foundation out there, if you don't get the framework built, 
then you're never going to be able to make the edits and do everything else. So that's, that's sort of my, my thought on that. Have you ever hired a book coach or a company to help you write any of your books? So I haven't, but uh, I have worked with people who have worked with ghostwriters. And I think that ghostwriters are very expensive. I mean, it can be thirty dollars or $40,000 for the best ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I actually kind of have a secret desire that I would love to work with a ghostwriter. Uh, one that I heard of, you, you fly to him. He's a professor at a college. You fly to him and spend like three days with him. Mm-hmm. And he deeply immersively interviews you about your topic and just peppers you and records everything. I mean, for like 20 hours over the multiple days. And then he gets inside your head and he goes back and he writes the book. And apparently, you know, people like that are, who do it that way are, are fantastic. And I've always thought, you know, I don't have the money to do that, but I've always thought, wow, what a cool experience to be able to just gush at somebody for three days and then have them be able to pull back and give you the product. So what's your next project? Do you have a book that's sort of percolating right now? Yeah, I swore I wasn't going to write any more books. And yet I have a brand new presentation that I've been doing for about the last year that has become a big portion of what I get hired to come into companies and associations to speak about. And it's called The Paradox of Potential. And it's all about how we started. It's all about this gap that exists between potential and results in your career and life. And it's been sort of a research-based thing. I've interviewed uh, through a survey about 350 people and then one-on-one about uh, 10% of those people I've talked to on the phone. And I found out that there's a lot of things that hold people back from reaching their potential and that there's a whole bunch of different things you can do to be able to get out and get into uh, sort of the mode of being able to cross that gap. And first of all, I don't think you ever get to the other side of that gap, by the way, Bruce, because there is a real gap between potential and results. But the problem is, is that as you go through life, as you cross that gap, if you just built a bridge all the way across, people think, oh, it's smooth sailing. I'll just drive across the bridge. Along the way, you meet new people, you read new things, you listen to more podcasts, your potential shifts. And therefore, you can't build a bridge. You've got to build a scaffolding, if you will, because then you can add another unit onto the scaffolding as you sort of work your way across and you can go up, down, diagonal, and oops, my potential has shifted. And you add more sort of pathway to get across. So that lends itself very well to a book. However, it probably has to be a book where I do work with a ghostwriter and I do work with a large scale publisher because this has some different things to it uh, than some of the books I've done in the past. And so it is a huge multi-year undertaking. Uh, so I'm running scared like a little baby away from it right now. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm sure you can use some mindfulness to move through that and to make that happen. Um, you know, I want to ask you five quick answer questions, Tom. And the first one is this, who is one person who influenced your mindfulness in your life? My father. Uh, my dad was 52 years old when I was born. So in a lot of ways, it was like being raised by a grandfather. He was, Mm -hmm. he had three sons, uh, who, when I was born were 10, 12 and 14. And by the way, I had the same set of parents. I was sort of a surprise. Uh, my dad always told everybody that a surprise was an accident that worked out really well because he liked me. Uh, (laughs) but because he was so much older and he's from, he was from the greatest generation, right? My dad was a world war II vet. He was older than many of my friends, grandparents. And Mm -hmm. so because he was 52, when I was born, he just had a way of looking at the world that he knew everything was going to work out. And, you know, if I would get upset or this and that, he always had this way of saying, yeah, things always work out. And, and I think that that really had a positive impact, impact on me, especially now that I'm in my fifties, I'm the same age now that he was when I was born. God love him for having an infant at 52. 
Yeah. How has mindfulness affected your emotions, Tom? I, you know, I think that as I've gone into this uh, whole 50 to 75 plan that I am, I am shepherding, I think that being mindful of experiences, of saying yes to things, of not getting stressed, of, of not getting pissed, of just doing all that, I think the, the emotion that it has triggered more than anything else is joy. I think because I am mindful that I'm going to have a good time, I think it has unleashed that emotion of, of joy. And I think that I think my wife sees it. I think my kids see it. I think my friends see it. I think my clients see it. So I, I think that's how. Tell us how breathing is part of your mindfulness practice. I don't think that it is other than the fact that it brings oxygen into my lungs that then goes into my blood and goes to my brain. So when you run and you do these half marathons, half marathon. are you... Thon. It was a half marathon. There was no plural. Oh, that's right. <laughs> that's right. But are you not more aware of your breathing when you do that, when you run? Uh, so when I first started running and I couldn't run a mile and I hired my friend who was a runner to kind of coach me through it, he actually pushed me too hard and I triggered asthma that I hadn't had in years. I almost had to go to the hospital. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly hadn't used an inhaler in forever. I had to go to the doctor and everything else. So I was mindful of breathing when I couldn't. Uh, but the rest of the time, for some reason, once I got up to where I was running three to five miles and then five to 10 miles uh, throughout the training, I... I, I rarely am that winded, so I know I don't. Uh, breathing has not been. I, mm. I I know you probably want a more philosophical answer. No, no, no. Do you ever run on a treadmill? All the time, because I live in oh. Austin, Texas. So from like June fifteenth to October first, you can't run outside. That's freaking ridiculous. Yeah, it'd be so hot. Well, it, what what book could you recommend which would be related to mindfulness? Do you have one? So I think you know I go old school on this, and I go back, you know. 25 years with the book. I think the best book I ever read that changed my world, and I probably now with what I'm doing, I should read it again, is The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Dr. Stephen Covey. And I, th I think that that is a book, I think it's timeless, and I think it really does affect people's mindfulness. Yeah, I agree with you there. I definitely do. Can you share an app which helps you to be more mindful? No, <laughs> I, I don't have my phone in front of me. I'm like, I'm, you know, I, I use my phone. I use the apps, but you know, no, I don't think I have anything that helps me be more mindful. Maybe, maybe my camera app, because uh, I, I pay more attention to things that are photo worthy and maybe that's mindful. Oh, that's kind of interesting. Yeah. Well, I, it was great. I, artsy. I try to be artsy and I'm not, but I want to, <laughs> I'm wanting to take cool pictures. Well, it was great seeing you at the New Media Summit, and it's always great seeing you in action. You know, when it's time to take a picture, you know exactly how to spring into action and get everybody standing in a certain way and sitting in a certain way. And that photo looks like a photo that was created by somebody that knew what he was doing, and that's you. So when I was in college, I was a party pick photographer. So I've always wanted to be an artistic photographer, but I always was just like a meat and potatoes thing. And if, if, if you went to college in the 80s and if you were in a fraternity or sorority or your dorm had parties, there were these companies that would show up and they would shoot like 10 rolls of film. And then you get these little proof sheets back at your next meeting or in the, in the common area or something like that. And the pictures would come back with a little blue title that said like Beta Theta Pi, Spring Dance, you know, or whatever. Uh, I was the party pick photographer for four years in college for a company like that. And then afterwards, uh, ran another company like that for another three years. And what happened was, is that 
the party picks, people thought we made so much money. We really made the money off of sorority bid day and other large group photography. But when you're photographing 100 plus people, you can't just have them all clump together. You have to be extravagantly mindful of things like how many rows do you have? Because if, if people end up too close to the camera, they're going to look bigger. Like have you ever been someone takes a picture at a dinner table yeah. up, around and the people close to the camera look huge and the people in the back look tiny. So you have to get people into just five or six rows and then cram together. And then people like always, they all came from the left. They want to clump on the left. It's like, no. So you have to see the group you mindfully have to see the group as a whole and you also have to see every individual like are there nine people in red shirts standing together you need to split them up i mean there's you have to see each individual and that you don't want them sitting on the ground too close up because they're not going to be happy with the picture even skinny people look big so it's like you have to be like explaining physics to them at the same time while you're getting them to get up and move to the back row and then all of a sudden uh the camera can't go back because there's a wall you have to get everybody to squeeze in tighter 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 and people just <laughs> think you're nuts and the only way you can do it is to just take charge big, yell at them, tell them where to be. And I've done that at the last two uh, new media summits. And it's so funny because people make fun of me and then they see the photograph and they're like, how did we get 150 plus people to all look the same size? And everybody's looking at the camera and you know, it's all balanced. And it's like, my thing is everyone needs a skill. And that was mine. That's definitely yours. Yes, I was impressed both times. Very impressive. How can we reach out to you? How can we learn more about what you do, Tom? You know, I'm, I'm pretty easy. Everything about me can be found at TomSinger.com. That's T-H-O-M-S-I-N-G-E-R.com. If, you, if, you if you're part of an association that has an annual conference or a company that has team meetings, uh, maybe I'm the right fit. Maybe I'm not. The only way to know is, is to have a conversation. Or maybe you're interested in uh, you know, learning to become a speaker, not necessarily full-time, but you're like, shoot, I could make some money on the side. I do some coaching for that. So uh, mm -hmm. just call me. I'll tell people all about it. And you're very good at it. You really are. You're a natural. So thanks a million for being on the show, Tom. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on the show. This was great. I'm, I feel like I should go be very mindful for the rest of the day. Definitely do that. <laughs> yeah, you take care. Bye now. Bye. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com and type the guest name or episode number into the search bar. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could help us out by subscribing to Mindfulness Mode wherever you listen. Maybe it's iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever. Hit subscribe and share. Subscribing and sharing helps keep Mindfulness Mode on the air. Subscribe and share, share, share. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode. <laughs>